Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies, who talks about the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla and demands for an independent investigation and accountability. Charlotte Grubb, a member of the Free Jessica Resnicek support team who discusses the importance of her case involving damage to a fossil fuel pipeline and the terrorism charge brought against Resnicek. And Andrew Perez, senior editor at The Lever, who examines the McCarthy-era law Republicans are using to attack pro-choice activists peacefully protesting the criminalization of abortion at Supreme Court justices' homes. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After President Emmanuel Macron defeated far-right candidate Marine Le Pen to win re-election on April 24th, French voters will be going to the polls again in mid-June to elect representatives to France's National Assembly. The long-splintered left has united for the legislative election to challenge Macron's neoliberal majority. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who ran a close third in the presidential election, has put together a coalition with the Socialists, Green Party, and the Communists. Early polling shows the left coalition, led by Mélenchon's LFI party, is running neck-and-neck with Macron's Renaissance party in the first round of the legislative elections. However, Mélenchon's criticism of the European Union, which led to his break with the Socialist Party a decade ago, may create divisions in the new left coalition. Mélenchon has laid out a popular agenda for new wealth taxes, raising the minimum wage, lowering the retirement age from 62 to 60, limiting the right of companies to lay off workers, and cap prices on essential goods. The Progressive Coalition has agreed to disobey or at least temporarily depart from EU rules on a number of economic, social, and budgetary policies. Few foreign governments have a significant presence in war-torn Somalia, but Turkey has built a hospital there with 47 intensive care beds, a Turkish company renovated and operates the nation's port, while another Turkish firm runs a hotel and the international airport. At Somalia's largest foreign military base, Turkish officers have trained and equipped more than 5,000 Somali soldiers and police commandos. In 2021, Turkey had $29 billion worth of trade with African nations, an eightfold increase since 2003. Today, Turkey has 42 diplomatic missions in Africa, and Turkish firms are chipping away at China's one-time dominance on the continent with some $78 billion worth of African projects, including airports, stadiums, and mosques. Last year, Tanzania awarded a Turkish firm a $1.9 billion contract to build a modern railway line. Turkey's authoritarian president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is also flexing his military muscle across Africa. The Economist reports that Ankara is challenging the influence of France in West Africa and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in Somalia. 
Turkey has signed military pacts with several African countries, most recently in Nigeria, Senegal, and Togo. By providing aid and security assistance, Turkey hopes that in time it will reap rewards from new relationships on the African continent. Across the nation, low-wage Latinos are victims of job-related injuries in construction, meat processing, landscaping, and warehousing. In 2020, more than 1,000 Latinos died on the job, a rate double of a decade earlier. The American Prospect reports that Texas is an especially dangerous place for low-income workers. It led the nation with a number of work-related deaths over the last decade. The Republican Party-led state also leaves some employees without workers' compensation benefits where some companies set their own compensation policies. In Greater Houston, 41% of Latinos have no health insurance and many can't pay for emergency expenses. Overall, Latino workers across the U.S., researchers say, tend to be younger and more inexperienced, lack on-the-job training, and earn lower wages. They take jobs in sectors that others avoid. They clean up after hurricanes and disasters at their own peril. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Palestinian-American, Shireen Abu Akla, one of the best-known journalists covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, was killed by a gunshot to the head on May 11th while covering an Israeli army raid in the city of Jenin in the occupied West Bank. At the time of the shooting, the Al Jazeera reporter was wearing a blue vest clearly labeled press as well as a helmet. Witnesses, including journalists who were with Abu Akla when she was killed, claim that Israeli soldiers opened fire on them without warning, and they believe that they were deliberately targeted as journalists. The Palestinian Authority, as well as Al Jazeera News, also blamed Israel for the journalist's death. During Abu Akla's funeral in East Jerusalem on May 13th, Israeli riot police attacked a group of mourners and pallbearers carrying the slain journalist's coffin, almost causing them to drop it. The assault on the funeral was widely condemned, including a statement from President Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Your reporter spoke with Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, who talks about the importance of Abu Akhla's journalism and demands for accountability and an independent investigation into her death. Shireen Abu Akhla, Scott, was an extraordinary journalist. She had been with Al Jazeera for almost 20 years, uh, and she was someone who was seen by Palestinian families, uh, really across the Arab world, but particularly Palestinians. She was on the air almost every night. It was sort of, I guess, the, the parallel in this country would be in the in the 1960s and 70s when Walter Cronkite was the voice of the news. Uh, definitive, human. But the difference was Shireen was a woman in a in a male-dominated field, and she was a Palestinian herself. So she was reporting the stories not only of 
the politics and the resistance and the struggles of the Palestinian movement, uh, but she was reporting on the lives of people, including her own family, her friends, herself. Uh, so she had an extraordinary uh, level of, of support and, and uh, real love from the population. Young journalists saw her as a role model, as a mentor, uh, shortly after the after she was killed, and and we should say, Scott, that they're really from people who were in a position to see it. There is no question that she was shot by Israeli soldiers. The automatic claim, which the Israelis tend to do, that oh well, maybe it was Palestinian shots gone wrong. You know, we we didn't do it. Now they're they've pulled back from that, and they're saying, well, it's possible that maybe it was Israeli soldiers accidentally, of course. You know, the accident being that it hit her in exactly the one spot on her face. So it's it's a it's really an enormous loss. And then, of course, it was made worse on Friday at the beginning of her funeral when her family brought the casket out from St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, and it was taken up by the, the pallbearers into the procession as as they wished. And the the procession was brutally attacked by Israeli police. That was it was on television all over the world, seeing it with their clubs just beating people. And they beat the pallbearers themselves so badly that they one of them slipped. They almost dropped the casket. The casket at one point was turned almost vertical. Just the humiliation and the desecration of the body of this extraordinary woman was was treated with with absolute disdain reflecting the the systemic issue of Israeli domination and the view that Palestinian lives are simply not worth saving. Uh, And this was one more example of that. Phyllis, uh, the outstanding question really is whether or not the Israeli military uh, targeted this journalist for assassination or not. There is a history of Israel targeting Palestinian journalists, as I've read it, since 2000, 46 Palestinian journalists have been killed. Put this in context for us, if you would. Ironically, just two weeks ago, uh, the International Federation of Journalists and the Palestinian Journalists Syndicate presented a, a call to the International Criminal Court, which is already uh, investigating, at least officially, the potential for Israeli war crimes, as well as Palestinian violations, for sure, that had been committed starting in 2014 during the Israeli assault on Gaza. The former prosecutor of the International Criminal Court had said that in the period since 2014, she would include other investigations, other potential crimes by all sides. So this certainly was appropriate to be added, and it was just two weeks ago that these very reputable journalism organizations had gone to the ICC to raise the issue of Israeli targeting of uh, its attacks on journalists, which included things like the bombing of the uh, the two high-rise buildings in, in Gaza that housed the uh, Al Jazeera offices and the Associated Press office uh, last year in May of 2021. Uh, destroying those offices and these numbers of journalists who have themselves been attacked. So this this broader question of uh, a pattern and practice, if you will, of attacking journalists is a, a longstanding uh, issue. The, I think that the challenge right now is is even more complicated than that 
because it's not only the question of who fired the shot, uh, whose gun was it. It's also, and this is what comes right back to the United States, who paid for that bullet, who paid for that gun. The U.S. money pays for 20 percent of Israel's entire military budget. So the chances are pretty good that our money paid for that gun, that our money paid for those bullets. It makes our government directly culpable. The Israeli government nor the U.S. government are going to seriously investigate themselves. But it gives an opportunity to our movements to make that demand for an independent and international investigation to be taken seriously and to include within it not just who pulled the trigger outside of Janine, but who paid for those weapons, for that ammunition that may have been directly involved in the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla. That's what we have to be pushing for, and it's going to take the work of our movements to make sure that that happens. That was Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where she directs the new Internationalism Project. Find more perspectives on the tragic death of journalist Shireen Abu Akhla by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2017, Jessica Resnicek and a partner from the Catholic Worker Movement publicly claimed responsibility for acts of vandalism against the Dakota Access Pipeline before it was transporting oil. No one was injured by Resnicek's acts of civil disobedience. In February 2021, she pled guilty to a single count of conspiracy to damage an energy facility. In June 2021, an Iowa judge imposed a five-year terrorism enhancement charge at the prosecution's request and sentenced Resnicek to eight years in prison. The judge also ordered over $3 million in restitution be paid to Energy Transfer LLC, the company which built the pipeline. On May 13th, a three-judge panel from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Paul, Minnesota, heard Resnicek's appeal of her terrorism enhancement sentence. All three judges are Trump appointees and are expected to rule on the case in the next few weeks. Dozens of Resnicek supporters attended the hearing online. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Charlotte Grubb, a member of the Free Jessica Resnicek support team. Here she talks about what motivated Resnicek to engage in direct action damage to the pipeline and why her case is so important to both the environment and climate movements. It all kind of depends on whether or not Jess uh, influenced the government and if that door is opened um, in terms of a terrorist enhancement applied to activists, then this could lead to a lot of other suppression of civil liberties that we have today. From what I read and what I have interviewed folks before, it sounded like the crux of the matter is whether her action was focused enough on the government because she actually took action against a private company. And my understanding is that the terrorism enhancement applies when there's the focus on the government. Is that right? There's a few different ways of defining it, but as it's defined in the U.S., the language is that actions need to be quote, calculated to influence or affect the conduct of the government or retaliate against government conduct. Jess's attorney argued that, you know, her actions did not. And the government prosecutor argued that Jessica's actions, they did target private property, but they kind of used the fact that her press release 
in her public statement where she came out and admitted to things uh, was in front of the Iowa Utility Board. And in her public statement, she was criticizing the regulatory process for the Dakota Access Pipeline, which you know later was found to be illegal by a federal judge. And by her critique of the regulatory process, that triggers the terrorism enhancement, according to the government prosecutor. Jessica Reznicek and another member of the Catholic Worker did damage to various parts of the Dakota Access Pipeline before it was operational. In other words, there was no oil flowing through it, and they didn't get caught. So a year later, they outed themselves at a press conference. Do you know why they did that? I encourage everyone to read their statement when they turned themselves in in 2017. You know, my understanding is they had exhausted all avenues of sanctioned critique or sanctioned oppression. And I think especially for Jess, you know, she grew up in Iowa swimming in the waters. And I think she just wanted clean water at the end of the day in these, in these bodies of water, these rivers that she had a really deep connection to. And I think um, she wanted to put a face to the fact that these systems aren't working, you know, like she tried, as she says in her letter, like submitting comments to the regulatory process. She tried a hunger fast. She tried nonviolent civil disobedience and, you know, kind of like an escalation of tactics in that way. So, you know, I mean, the Catholic workers also have a long, the plowshare tradition has a long history of these similar actions. Yeah, they just wanted to personalize this escalation of tactics and people who, you know, go without the sanctified means are not these, you know, mysterious creatures lurking in the nights. Like there are people with a strong connection to place who are really spiritually intact, who have a really clear rationale for acting in the way that they do. So I think that's kind of where Jess is coming from. But I definitely, yeah, encourage people to read, read stuff in her own words. Charlotte Grubb, I thought that if the appeals court rules in her favor, that would mean that five years would be taken off Jessica Reznicek's sentence. But you're saying not necessarily? The terrorism enhancement could be removed, but that at this point does not necessarily mean that her sentence would be lessened, if that makes sense. Although when she was charged with it, it automatically increased her sentence, but the way the appeals work, the months wouldn't automatically go off. You mentioned that this case could be extremely important for all kinds of other struggles. Can you elaborate? I just think everyone should be really, you know, paying close attention to this. This could have implications for a lot of different movements today that can span from reproductive justice to Black Lives Matter to environmental justice. So people should really be paying attention. And we feel really heartened by the support that Jess has received from within those walls, as well as outside of the walls that we've been receiving as a team for people to amplify and educate themselves on this issue. That was Charlotte Grubb, a member of the Free Jessica Resnicek support team. Learn more about the group supporting Resnicek and what's at stake in her legal case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
In response to the leaked draft of a Supreme Court majority ruling that would overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that protects women's access to abortion, there's been hundreds of protests, vigils, and teach-ins across the U.S. On May 14th alone, over 450 Bands Off Our Bodies events took place in support of abortion rights nationwide. Women and their supporters have also been peacefully demonstrating in front of the homes of three conservative Supreme Court justices, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito, who wrote the leaked majority draft opinion. But some Republican senators, governors, and right-wing pundits have called for the arrest and prosecution of these protesters, citing federal statute Title 18, Section 1507 of the U.S. Code, which says it's illegal with the intent of influencing any judge to picket or parade in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness, or court officer. The statute was part of the Internal Security Act of 1950, a McCarthy-era law enacted to stop people from protesting the prosecutions of alleged communists. Your reporter spoke with Andrew Perez, senior editor at The Lever, who discusses this attack on free speech and the larger issue of the Republican Party's crackdown on dissent. Right when the leak was uh, was sort of first published, uh, you know, the government started building very tall fences all around the Supreme Court. Um, so I think, you know, that, that uh, activists sort of then decided to mobilize, um, you know, leading people to, to those houses, to the, to the justices' houses. Um, and, you know, by all accounts, the, the protests have been, you know, completely peaceful. Um, but what we've seen is that, um, yeah, conservative lawmakers, um, you know, it, was, it started with just a few, but uh, a number of conservative lawmakers and uh, right-wing pundits and even the Washington Post editorial board um, are calling for uh, the, the people protesting outside the judges' houses uh, to be arrested. Um, and they're, they're citing a uh, 70-year-old statute that was passed in a McCarthy-era law. Um, and it was deliberately designed to, to target uh, communists, but it, it cracks down on parading or picketing outside either federal courts um, or uh, judges' homes. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri as reported in your article, sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland asking the Department of Justice to prosecute and arrest these protesters. What's been the response of the Justice Department? I mean, I think they've they've been asked about it and they've basically said that they're just monitoring the situation. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty special coming from from Holly, of all people, because, you know, when when the January 6th insurrection happened at the Capitol, he was you know, photographed kind of giving the, the protesters this kind of like fist salute um, up in the air before, you know, only only about an hour before those people then uh, stormed the Capitol. Um, so it's definitely, you know, pretty rich coming from him, but he's not alone in this now. There's, you know, there's actually a whole bunch of senators um, who, have, who have also written their own letters to the Justice Department. Um, Tom Cotton, Chuck Grassley, Marco Rubio, um, Marsha Blackburn has also called for them to be arrested, and then 40 House Republicans, um, and, and also 25 Republican attorneys general have too. We've had a series of state governments since the George Floyd protests a couple of summers ago pass laws that would make it more difficult for people to peacefully assemble and hold demonstrations. There's even been some state laws 
that uh, permit drivers, motorists, to run down protesters who may be in the street in their demonstrations and give those drivers a pass. In other words, they would be beyond prosecution if they were to injure or kill protesters. This is some serious territory uh, in terms of a war on dissent that we see many Republicans around the country engaging in. Yeah, definitely. A few, a few states did pass laws in the, in, in the past few years that would allow uh, motorists to, to run over protesters. Um, you know, some, some of them, like, in the, the, I think the law in Florida, there was like an anti-rioting act that passed. Um, and, you know, basically they, they could use a sort of like self-defense uh, or they could kind of claim self-defense that they were concerned for their own well-being. Um, you know, I think Oklahoma also passed a similar law, though theirs is a little less, little less radical. But you know, it, it basically does still, you know, allow them to say like, well, if like I couldn't stop, or you know, if I didn't see them, um, that they that they can run over protesters. And you know, the the what's what's really kind of scary about it is like that is what happened, right? Like in in, in Charlottesville, um, uh, you know, violent protesters there during during a, a violent protest. A right winger did murder a woman, a young woman. Um, so it's it, it is pretty scary stuff. And yeah, I mean, you know, all of this is happening uh, amid this kind of like, you know, Republican crusade where they're you know just uh, all like pretend to be highly highly concerned about uh, you know <laughs> about free speech and uh, and cancel culture. But you know, meanwhile they yeah are looking to criminalize dissent in in, in a pretty serious way. Tell us a little bit about what you think is going on here in terms of uh, this right-wing distraction campaign that seems to be designed to to get media focus off the actual uh, likely Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're going to see, you know, if they move to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, like about about half of the states are going to quickly denying uh, people the, the the right to an abortion. Um, and, and forcing them to carry uh, their pregnancies to term, you know, with the power of the state. They, they want people focused on, is it wrong to protest at these people's houses? You know, who, who leaked this document? They want people focused on that. They, it's, and especially they want the media focused on that um, instead of, you know, the actual issue, which is that the Supreme Court is ready to deny uh, abortion rights to tens and tens of millions of people around this country. It is to to an extent working, right? Like we saw the Washington Post editorial board uh, endorsing this like use of you know a seventy year old McCarthy era law to to arrest protesters. So you know they're, they're trying to work the rests and get them focused on you know different topics, and it's it it clearly is you know having some effect. That was Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at the Lever, who along with David Sirota wrote the article titled McCarthy era law aimed at pro-choice protesters. Find a link to their article and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, KGHI in Westport, Washington, Global Community Radio Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.